Ladies and gentlemen, by popular demand, we're doing a class today on Judaism and the Zodiac. The title of this class is Beyond the Stars, the Kabbalistic View of Astrology, and you'll understand shortly why we've entitled it Beyond the Stars. Um, why are we doing this class? We just got back from a trip to Poland, and many of the trip participants noticed zodiac signs on the ceilings and uh, various motifs around the, the very, very old synagogues that we visited. Um, not only that, but uh, an, one of the most ancient synagogues in the world, an archaeological site that was uh, dug up in Sipori in northern Israel, discovered once again signs of the zodiac in along in the synagogue motifs what's the significance not only that but it actually in some ways complicates matters that according to jewish law it's really not recommended to have symbols of animals or uh, any sort of statues in a synagogue there's a discussion about having lions on the um on the Aron, on the Ark, which is quite common, um, but it happens to be that there are, there is actually um, many, many synagogues that that do have zodiac signs, although definitely not recommended according to some Jewish authorities. It's allowed, and obviously was done throughout the centuries. So, what's the significance? So clearly, there is a connection between Judaism and the zodiac, but do Jews really believe in the Zodiac? Like, do we believe in checking your horoscope or in uh, astrology? Is that really even a Jewish thing? Many people would assume that it's not. But in order to answer this question, we have to, uh, we have to delve deep into um, some other concepts as well. Um, beginning with... Um, does Judaism believe in other gods, right? The Zodiac is often associated with idolatry, worship of uh, a pantheon or multiplicity of gods, polytheism, um, which included the worship of stars. In fact, in, in Judaism, the idea of an idolater, someone who worships many gods, is known as an akum, which is an, which is an acronym for Ovid, Kokavim Umazalos, which means one who worships stars and something called Mazalos. Does anyone know what the word Mazal means in Hebrew? I mean, when we say Mazal Tov, does anyone know what Mazal Tov means? Sounds like good luck, right? Um, the truth is, like, luck is not a Jewish concept. We don't believe in luck. We believe that everything that happens is for a reason. Luck is that things happen good sometimes for no reason, right? That's not, that's not a Jewish concept. But the truth is, is that we started by asking if anyone, if does Judaism believe in the zodiac and astrology, astronomy, astrology? Anyone? Do you know what mazal means, actually? Does anyone know how to say zodiac in Hebrew? Mazal. The mazalot, mazalot, are literally the constellations. 
Now that is very weird for a Jew to say Mazel Tov. Wow, you got married. It must be you have good. You have a good horoscope, right? That is very strange. We have to understand it. Okay. Question number two, that is very tied into the idea of the Mazalot, is as we mentioned, does Judaism believe in the existence of other gods? As we know, an idolater in the times of the Talmud was called an Ovid Kochavim Umazalos, someone who worshipped stars and constellations. So do we believe in other gods? Does Judaism believe that there's an existence to other gods? So we believe in one God, right? Judaism believes in one God. Of course we don't believe in other gods. Or do we? Hold that thought. Let me just add even one more question to make it even more confusing. Does Judaism even believe that God exists? Do we even believe that God exists? Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. Okay, let's start with the idea of idolatry. And as we'll find out, the concept of idolatry is is intrinsically linked to the idea of the Zodiac. So if you ask your average person if Judaism believes in other gods, they will say, no, of course not. Judaism believes in one God, right? We say it in, in our prayers, the Shema says, there's only one God. But the truth is, you, you got to think a little bit deeper, because do you know that the number one prohibition in the Torah is not to worship idols? Now, if there aren't other gods... So why do you have to tell me hundreds, like dozens of times throughout the Torah not to worship other gods? Do you have to, is there a commandment? Is there a mitzvah in the Torah not to be stupid? So you, you, you may think that perhaps um, perhaps maybe the, the study of the stars would bring one to believe that they created themselves, but we're going to see it's much deeper than that, okay? So the, the Torah doesn't need to command you not to be stupid. You don't need a Torah to tell you not to be stupid. If worshiping an idol is nothing, does nothing, is completely meaningless, so the Torah doesn't have to, ne- have to warn you multiple times not to worship idols. Okay, the, from the fact that the Torah mentions over and over and over again not to worship idols, we have to conclude that there's actually a reality to the worship of idols. There's a reality to the concept of other gods. In fact, in fact, idolatry actually worked. We believe that idolatry was a real thing. If you look at the Shema prayer, it says a crazy thing. The Shema prayer, which states that there's one God, Hashem Echad, also states that it says two different names of God. Hero Israel, Shema Israel, Hashem, Yud Ke Vav Ke, Yud He Vav He. It's a four letter name of God, which is like the name of God's essence. There are ten different names of God in the Torah, and they all denote different attributes, different ways in which God interacts with the world. But the name, is yud heh vav which is actually a code. We've, I've explained it before. I could show you. 
Um, I don't have the PowerPoint lined up right now, but essentially the name Yud Yud Vavhe is an acronym for what was, what is, what will be. Three Hebrew words. Danny, what does Hayah mean? What was? What does Hoveh mean? What is? V'yiyah. Yiyah means what will be. If you put those three words on top of each other, you get yud heh vav heh. yud heh vav heh is literally an acronym for what was, what is, what will be. Essentially, ultimate existence. When we say, does Judaism believe that God exists? The answer is no. Judaism does not believe God exists. Judaism believes God is existence. The totality of reality. God is the space in which the universe exists. Literally, the nothingness that preceded existence. That's what we refer to when we say God. We mean the source of all reality. But in that very prayer where we say Hashem Echad, that God is one, absolute oneness, the totality of all existence, the simple unity that, that transcends the multiplicity of the world, we also say Hashem Elokeinu. And the name Elokeinu is very problematic. The name Elokeinu is translated as our God, but it comes from the Hebrew word Elohim. The word Elohim is actually the word that's used to refer to other gods, Elohim Acherim, other gods as well. But the word Elohim itself is very problematic. Why is the word Elohim problematic? Anyone with a Hebrew background? What happens when you add an im at the end of a word? Eloha means God. What does Elohim mean? Danny, you're muted. Oh, wait. You're not muted. I'm muted. What does it mean? When you add an im at the end of a word, pluralizes it, right? The word safer means books. Farim means books. The... Um, uh, a person is an enosh, anashim is people. So Elohim literally means gods with an S at the end, plural gods. So in the very prayer where we say that there's one God, that Hashem is echad, Hashem is one, not that there's one being in the sky, but that God is absolute oneness. In that very same prayer, we say that Hashem, the source of all reality, is our gods with a plural, with an S. What in the world is going on here? In this very prayer we say there's one God, we say that Hashem is our gods with a plural. So why is the word name for God plural? The answer is, is that Judaism recognized that there are many gods. What is the, How does that work? Exactly. Good question. So... The word Elohim actually means powers or forces. The forces of nature, in, in many, many cases, it refers to the forces that control our existence. So what forces are we talking about? And the word Elohim also has the numerical value of the Hebrew word Hateva, which means nature. So Elohim refers to the forces of nature. The forces of nature which which appear and perhaps even are many gods, powers, forces. 
and and there are multiplicity of forces. So what what are these other gods? So let's let's figure this out. I just want to um, throw in that the okay. So what are these other gods? So in order to create the world, God who is Hashem, the source of everything, absolute infinite oneness, needed to create something which is finite, a world of multiplicity. In order for the infinite to be to create finite. Kabbalah teaches us that God had to create many different worlds, different layers upon layers, and each layer of worlds is a little bit farther from the oneness, from the unity of God's existence. So in the first world, it's a world of almost oneness, and yet in that world, God begins to reveal himself as as possessing traits and attributes, the attributes of God, it's known as the world of Etzilis, the world that's close to God. After that, we have worlds of angelic worlds where you have spiritual forces. An angel in Hebrew, Malach, is, is actually tra- best translated as a spiritual energy, a spiritual force, a messenger that carries out God's will into this world. And then you have descending and descending worlds, each one possessing more multi- more levels of multiplicity until you get to this world, the world of action, the world of material existence, the world of stuff. And in this world, God is almost completely hidden. We live in a world where the rule is multiplicity, disorder, disharmony. We don't see unity. We don't see purpose. You have to look hard. And occasionally you can find God's God in this world. The idea of a miracle is where the, the forces of nature temporarily cease. But God runs this realm according to the laws of nature. And the laws of nature, by definition, hide God's existence. Although there are those that will argue that nature is really just a miracle. It's just a miracle that you're used to, right? The fact that the sun rises, yeah. Exactly. As you go up the ladder, God's existence becomes clear. But in the world we live in, we live in a world where God is hidden in order for us to possess free will. And the purpose of all these worlds is to get to this world, a world where you cannot see God, a world where you have choice whether or not to find God, to look and to search, to connect to God through your own free will, not because you're programmed to do so, right? If God were to be openly revealed, you wouldn't have free will. It would be obvious. And the purpose of, of reality is that we should come to find God through our own our own choice, not because we're programmed to do it. So one of the things that has to take place is there has to be an intermediary between the higher spiritual world and this world. And that intermediary, according to Kabbalah, is astrology, the stars. The stars, of not the physical stars. The physical stars are a manifestation. Everything in the physical world is a manifestation of something in the higher world. But that intermediary between this world and the next world is known as the zodiac. There are spiritual forces, angelic creatures, um, um, cosmic um, astrological powers which transmit life force into this world. And those are known as the forces of the zodiac. They are literally um, cosmic beings that bring God's flow and life force into this world. The, more, the word mazal, 
the word mazel, when we say mazel tov, does not mean luck. It actually comes from the Hebrew word nozel, right? If you have like a runny nose. And nozel means to flow. When we refer to the, to the, to the mazalos, we refer to the flow of spiritual energy from the higher world into this world. And that flow comes through what's known as the zodiac. These, these, these forces. Now, back in the day, Maimonides explains where the idea of idolatry came from. The worship of idols was that people felt that they were too low to connect to God directly. So they said, instead of worshiping God, let's worship his servants, the stars, these spiritual forces that bring spirituality into this world. Let's worship the stars, the sun and the moon and the, and the astrological symbols. And eventually they forgot that the goal was to connect to God. By the way, does that sound like another religion at all? The idea that we're too low to come to God directly, we have to go through an intermediary? Some might argue that that's, yeah. Closer, something that's more tangible and something that we, we don't have to be on such a high level to connect to. Let's just connect to the king's servants, so to speak. And eventually they came to forget God. One might say that Christianity is an offshoot of that. The idea that you need an intermediary, you need a person who is also God, a deity, um, a some sort of a, a form to connect to God, that you can't connect to God directly. So Christianity could be a, a branch of this idolatrous type of thinking. But Judaism says these idolatrous forces are real, that the worship of idols, people weren't worshiping statues. The statues were merely a form to meditate on, to connect you to a real spiritual power, an angelic force that existed in the upper realms. And they really worked, that a person was actually able to tap into spiritual energy before it came into this world. The idea of magic or black magic is manipulation of spiritual forces in order to benefit yourself, to get you what you want. Judaism is the exact opposite. We believe that the purpose of prayer, people make a mistake. They think that prayer is writing a shopping list of the stuff that I need and asking God to give me those things. That's no different than asking an idol to give you what you want. And if you really know how to pray properly or you know how to do idolatry, you can get what you want by manifesting it, by learning to focus your mind very, very strong on that idea. You're able to bring that energy into the world. But that's not what Jewish prayer is about. Jewish prayer is the opposite. It's saying, God, I know I could get what I want, but I'm not in this world to get what I want. I'm in this world to connect to what you want. So prayer is really the opposite of asking for what we want. It's asking God to help us want what he wants. It's asking God to give us what's best for us, not what we want. Prayer is actually the mechanism that counteracts our ability to get what we want in this world. Because life's not about filling our own needs Life is about tapping into the greater vision of what's good for all the entire world. So, so just to summarize what we said so far, God is essentially described in Kabbalah as white light. That white light shone through the prism 
into the three-dimensional world splinters into all the colors of the rainbow. We live on this side of the prison. We live in the world of multiplicity. Ultimately, everything has its source in white light. The prism, which divides that white light into all the parts of the rainbow, is essentially the zodiac. The zodiac brings the energy of God's white light into the into this world. So those who really knew how to tap into the astrology, and there were experts. Nowadays, what you read in the newspaper is not the real thing. But those who really understood how to understand the Zodiac could see what was coming into the world before it even manifests itself into this world. They weren't able to uh, – it's very different than prophecy. Prophecy is going beyond the Zodiac and seeing – from the a previous world, but the, those who understood the zodiac were able to see the spiritual energy as it was descending into this world before it actually manifests itself in the physical. So, and the stars essentially are the metaphor for the white light coming into the multiplicity because the stars are literally little glimpses of light across this black horizon. And idolatry was tapping into the spiritual forces and manipulating them for our own purposes. So not only would an astrologer be able to um, predict the future by looking into the stars or the past for that matter, they could find your spiritual root depending on where, where, when you were born, but they also had the ability, those who were, who were well-versed in it, who in, in, the, in, the, in, in magic, the occult, or the worship of idols were able to actually manipulate that energy and change it before it came down, before it trickled down. So there's no coincidence that there are 12 months of the year, right? Each month obviously corresponds to these mazalos, to these constellations, 12 hours in the day, right? But there actually is a deeper reason for that, not just the 12 constellations, but... The name of God, yud heh vav heh which means what was, what is, what will be, actually breaks down if you take four combinations of letters, two of which are the same, right? There's two hays, you get 12 permutations of God's name. Each month and each hour of the day corresponds to one of God's, the letters of God, one of the names of God, one of the 12 different combinations of God's name, which essentially symbolizes the fact that God is beyond and above the zodiac. So we believe in the zodiac, we just don't worship the zodiac because we believe that God is ultimately the source of the zodiac. So why go to the store, like the clerk at the store, and try to get a discount on what you want to buy? Instead, go to the owner of the store. Right? That's the idea. Yes, question, Liz. Well, that's – yeah, that's true. So the Hebrew calendar is very interesting. It's actually, this week's Parsha. We're going to talk about this week's Parsha. There are three references to the Zodiac in this week's Torah portion, okay? So the Hebrew calendar is actually based on – right? So the um, Gregorian calendar is a solar calendar, which goes completely according to the Zodiac, right? The Zodiac is based on the, the sun, the rotation of the, the earth uh, of the earth around the sun, determines the zodiac and the month is depending on which constellation is rising at that month however and the muslim calendar is a completely is a completely lunar calendar right the muslim calendar is based on the lunar month right the the, the moon appears uh, a new moon appears every 29 and a half days 
So a, a lunar year consists of 354 days. It's 11 days shorter than a solar year. So therefore, every three months, a lunar month is one month earlier. And, that, and therefore, every three, every, um, every nine years, a Muslim month appears in a different season. So Ramadan literally hops around the solar year. But the Jewish calendar, based on this week's Torah portion, is actually a combination of both lunar and solar. The Jewish calendar follows the months. Our months are based on the sighting of the new moon. That means every Jewish month is either 29 or is either 30 or 31 days, depending on when the new moon is seen, either on the 29th and a half day or on the 30th day. However, now we have a fixed calendar, but this is biblically, it's based on when the moon is sighted. However, the Torah also says that Passover in this week's Parsha is the holiday of springtime, which means that it always falls out on the, in the season of the spring. And therefore, the Jewish calendar adds in a leap year, a leap month every few years in order to keep Passover always in the springtime. So you're right that the constellations go according to a Gregorian month, but they also line up more or less with the Hebrew months, although it's not exact. Excellent question. So in this week's Parsha, actually, Paro says to Moshe, I see that Ra is in front of you. Paro says the Jews want to go out into eat into the desert to serve their God. Paro says, I see something called Ra is against your face. The word Ra is the Hebrew word that means evil. It's also the name of the Egyptian sun god. Interesting. So the Talmud says that what Paro was referring to is that he saw a star called Ra, one of the constellations which was rising at the time that the Jews wanted to go into the desert. And Paro says that this god, Ra, it could be associated with Mars, is a, is a sign of blood. He says, I see that blood will fall in the desert. So you want to go out into the desert? You're going to fail anyway. You're all going to die in the desert. So, again, a, 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 um, a reference to, um, to the constellations. There's another reference in this week's Parsha, is that the Jews were commanded, the very first commandment the Jews received in Egypt, the first one was to count the months, as we just mentioned, based on the sighting of the moon. That's the very first mitzvah given to the Jewish people. It's very, very, before the Torah was given, the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people in Egypt was the counting of the months. But the second mitzvah given was the mitzvah of Passover. Do you know what we do on Passover? Passover is called Pesach. What is Pesach referring to? Something called the carbon Pesach. Does anyone know what the carbon Pesach was? It was sacrificial offering called the Paschal Lamb. Do you know why the Jews were commanded? They were commanded to take a lamb and to tie it to their bedpost for couple of days, and then to sacrifice it on Passover. Do you know why the first commandment was to sacrifice a lamb? To slaughter a lamb and then eat that lamb? Because the Egyptians worshipped a sheep. The Egyptians worshipped a sheep. Now, why? what's the significance of the Egyptians worshipping a sheep and Passover? Do you know what time of year Passover falls out? Do you know what month Passover falls out in? 
springtime. Yeah? What constellation falls out Passover time? Does anyone know what the first constellation is in the zodiac? Actually, the springtime is when the zodiac begins. And that is the constellation of Aries. Do you know what Aries is? The ram or the sheep. The Egyptians worshipped the sheep god, Aries, which they believe was the most powerful sign of the constellation of the zodiac because it's the first sign in the zodiac. The Jews were commanded to sacrifice the sheep, symbolizing Aries, in the month of Aries at the time. When does Passover fall out? What day of the month? 15th of the month, the full moon. At the time when the zodiac is the strongest to show that we do not believe that the zodiac sign has power over us. Okay, that's symbol symbol of slaughtering the the um, the sheep on Passover. So the Talmud explains that someone who's born under a star does the zodiac have power? For someone who's born, the Talmud gives an example. Someone who's born under Mars, the sign of Mars. Mars is a sign of is a red star. It's a red planet. Symbolizes blood. A person who's born under the sign of Mars will be a bloodthirsty person. So are we bound by that? Ah, exactly. So says the Talmud, just because you're born under a star, under a certain zodiac, under a certain constellation, with a, does this in fact dictate aspects of your personality. But you're not bound to them. Says the Talmud, the person who's born under the, the red star, Mars, can either be bloodthirsty, can be a killer, or they can become a butcher, or they can become a mohel, a ritual circumciser. Why? They can channel that bloodthirsty, or in fact, could become a doctor. They can channel that connection to blood and use it for good, or they can use it for bad. Your, your zodiac dictates aspects of your personality, but you're not bound to that. On a similar note, the Talmud points out that although Paro noticed that the Jews were going into, de into the desert under the sign of Ra, under this red star, which symbolized bloodshed, the Talmud says, well, Paro was right, but he misinterpreted it because in fact the bloodshed that he was seeing was the Jews circumcising themselves in the desert. Now the symbolism of circumcision, as we mentioned before previously, is a symbolism of going beyond your nature. Right? Circumcision takes place on the eighth day. The number eight, the number seven in, in Torah numerology corresponds to the idea of nature, seven days of the week, seven notes in the musical scale, seven, seven colors in a rainbow, seven continents, seven seas, seven, seven symbolizes nature. The number eight symbolizes the supernatural. So circumcision symbolizes going against nature person is born a certain way, we cut ourselves, we change ourselves, we change our nature, that symbolizes the ability to go against our nature. So that's that's what Paro was, was seeing when he saw bloodshed, actually we were able to channel that nature. So let's take it a step further. So number one is Judaism says we are born according to our zodiac, our zodiac dictates our nature, but we're not bound by that nature, we can change that nature, we can channel it for something good. We can turn bloodshed into circumcision. We can turn 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 a desire 
towards anger or towards killing into doing something good with that by becoming a butcher or, or a moil or something like that. Number two, the Torah tells us something even more profound of a Jewish connection to the, to the Zodiac. Avram and Sarah, the first Jews, according to the Torah, were barren. They were both unable to have children. The Talmud says they were, they were literally born without um, reproductive organs that worked. So what's the message there? Avram, God tells Avram, you're going to have children. God, Avram says, how can I have children? My Zodiac says that I'm not able to have children. How can we have children? So the Torah says, God says to Avram, go outside of your tent and look at the stars. And the simple explanation, he says, can you count them? And then, he, then God says, so will be your children. You will have children that are that outnumber the stars. So the Talmud says a very profound Kabbalistic explanation of this conversation. God says, God takes Avram out of his tent and he says, look at the stars. And the word look that the Torah uses is actually a word look denotes looking down from above. And the Talmud says that God took Avram and lifted him outside the Zodiac. He lift, literally picked him up above the universe and said, look down at the stars. So will be your children. Your children will have the ability to go beyond the stars. Literally, that they are not bound by the constellations. And the Talmud concludes, Ein mazel Yisrael. The Jewish nation is not bound by the Zodiac. What does that mean? Avram and Sarah were not able to have children physically. They literally, according to their constellation, they literally rose above their constellation and changed their destiny. So will be your children. The Jewish people have the ability to literally live supernaturally. We have the ability to be supernatural. When a person overcomes their own nature, when a person goes beyond their physical nature, then the laws of nature don't apply. They literally become supernatural. That's the idea of keeping mitzvahs. The Talmud says that when a person, that through prayer or through mitzvahs, through doing incredible acts of self-sacrifice, of acts of goodness, kind deeds, or, or divine commandments, or prayer, a person has the ability to break out of their destiny, to break out of their mazel, to break out of their zodiac. The Talmud adds in two other things that a person can do to change their zodiac. They can change their name or they can change their location. Because when you change your physical address or your name, which is your spiritual address, you can actually also change your zodiac. I want to share with you one other amazing idea based on the story of Avram going outside and counting the stars. It's an idea from Rev. Mayor Shapiro. We met Rev. Mayor Shapiro on our Poland trip. He's the rabbi of Lublin of the yeshiva in Leblin who started the Daf Yomi. Rameer Shapiro says the story between God and Avram is as follows. Avram says, go outside of your tent, Avram, and count the stars. And Avram begins counting. One, two, three, 300, 500, 600, 1,000. And then God says, stop. So will be your children. You, Avram, attempt to do the impossible. So will be the Jewish people. They will attempt to do the impossible. To literally try to count the stars. It's impossible. You can never count the stars. And yet he tries nonetheless. That's the mission of the Jewish people. To try and attempt the impossible. By attempting to do the impossible. That which is not natural. We are able to connect to supernatural power. To infinite power. So in addition to channeling our mazel. We can actually change our mazel. We're not bound by 
our constellation, our zodiac, if we choose to live supernaturally, if we choose to overcome our nature, we actually can transcend nature. You ever hear someone say, you know what? I can't change. I'm just an angry person. You ever hear anyone say that? I'm just by nature, I'm angry. By nature, I'm lazy. By nature, I'm selfish. By nature, I'm jealous. That's just the way I am. I can't change. That is a lie. We have the ability to change at any moment. We're not bound by our nature or our nurture. We, as human beings, possess free will. We can transform ourselves at any moment. So the Talmud gives a story of Rabbi Akiva's daughter. Rabbi Akiva's daughter was told by an astrologer that she would die on her wedding night. So the whole wedding, everyone's really nervous. After the wedding's over, they look. She doesn't die. And it's amazing. They look at her chair. Behind her bridal canopy, there is a needle, like a hairpin. And the hairpin is stuck in the wall, and it pierces a serpent, a very poisonous serpent. Serpent. So what happened? In the middle of the wedding, Rabbi Kiva's daughter took off her hairpin and stuck it in the wall behind her, and she literally pierced the serpent on the thing. So they asked her, the rabbis asked her, what happened today? What did you do? She says, in the middle of the wedding feast, she noticed a poor man came into the wedding and needed something to eat. And everyone else was so busy with the celebration, they didn't even notice him. She called him over, and she gave him her food to eat. The Talmud says that in that merit of tzedakah, of giving to a poor person, she literally changed her mazel. Her mazel was to die that night. The serpent was going to kill her, but she changed her destiny by going beyond nature. Giving tzedakah is one of the most unnatural things a person can do. In the animal kingdom, there's no such thing as doing kindness for someone that's not you. She giving tzedakah, giving to a purpose, and literally goes against our selfish, natural desire, and can literally make us supernatural. Yes, question, Danny. Wait, you're muted. You're muted. Still muted. Yes. You're good. No, she didn't change the constellation, but she she no longer was bound by the constellation. All right, the constellations are only binding if we live according to nature. But if we become supernatural by giving tzedakah, by changing our nature, by going against our natural tendencies of selfishness and anger, so we can literally blow ourselves out of the constellations. The constellations don't aren't bound. We're not bound by them. So. Again, in summary, Zodiac is real. According to Judaism, the Zodiac is the spiritual forces, the angelic uh, powers that bring spiritual energy into this world. It's possible to read them and understand the future before it's revealed in this world. And it's also possible to tap into them and manipulate them through idolatry or magical practices which were able to channel that energy and then use it for one's own benefit. Judaism says that other gods are real, and yet we are not meant to worship those other gods. We're not meant to tap into and manipulate that energy. We're supposed to go to the source 
that which is beyond this world. The zodiac is just an intermediary between the spiritual world and this world. Our job is to go straight to the source, not to try to get a discount by going to the bank teller or the clerk at the desk. We're supposed to go to the owner of the company. We're supposed to go to that which controls the whole system. God is just the programming programmer controlling this matrix. We live in a world which is essentially a matrix. It's a three-dimensional construct to hide God's existence, but we can go directly to the programmer. We can go beyond the matrix, beyond our constellation, and then we are not bound by the sources of the zodiac. Either we can channel the zodiac, right, using our free will to take our nature and use it for good. If you're an angry person, become angry at injustice, right? If you're a bloodthirsty person, use that to do something positive with blood. Become a surgeon, Right? Or we can actually literally rewrite our zodiac. We can go beyond the zodiac to break out of the zodiac by living a supernatural life, not only by transforming our nature, but by living a spiritual life, giving tzedakah through prayer, through mitzvahs. We literally are not bound by the zodiac. As it says in Talmud, Ein mazel Yisrael, the Jewish people is not bound by mazel. When we say mazel tov to somebody, we're not saying, oh, you had good luck. Luck is the opposite of what Jews believe. We believe that everything is for a purpose. Instead, what we're saying is you have good flow. You're literally aligned to the spiritual forces that are pouring down blessing into your life. Our job is to align ourselves to God's will, not to manipulate spirituality for our own purposes. When we pray, it's not a process of just coming to God with a shopping list of what we want. Instead, we should be introspecting on is what we want really what God wants for us. Is that really what's best for us? Instead of asking God for what I want, we should, we should actually figure out how what, what, what we want is going to actually benefit God. How can we change ourselves in order to make room and space for goodness to come into our life as opposed to trying to change the world to give us what we want? So that is, in short, uh, just a little bit of a summary of the Jewish perspective of the constellations. Um, so to, to answer our original questions, does Judaism believe in the Zodiac? Yes, 100% we believe in the Zodiac. Does Judaism believe in gods, other gods? Yes, we believe in other gods. In fact, the Shema prayer, when we say that God is one, we actually say that God is our gods. Because what are those gods? Those are the forces that control our destiny. Whether we're talking about the spiritual forces that bring energy into this world or the angels that control that literally interact with every little thing the talmud says that every blade of grass has an angelic force that stands next to it and tells it to grow right everything in this world is a manifestation of something in the other world or just simply put the forces that control our destiny whether it's the forces of nature the sun the moon the rain the stars the forces of gravity or it's the the societal forces that control our destiny love war the economy medicine Right, We're, Our lives are at the mercy of all sorts of different forces. And if you lived in idolatrous reality, right, or, or in nowadays terminology, if you believe in subjective reality, so you are the victim of many forces that control your reality. Judaism says all those forces are really one. There is one conductor to the symphony of this world. There is one source to everything. Yeah, there are lots of spiritual forces which control reality, but none of them have independent power. They are all subservient to the one source. When we ask, does Judaism believe that God exists? The answer is no, God does not exist. God is existence itself. He is the source of everything. All we have to do is tap in to his will 
for reality, and literally we're not bound by the forces of nature. We can become supernatural.